Let's open our Bibles to the second chapter of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 and see the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the pastor and church at Ephesus and see the lesson that applies to all of us. We call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves Bible Christians. And yet the Bible lays down some very careful descriptions of what a true Christian is. And we need to measure ourselves by those descriptions today. We need to measure ourselves by this warning that the Lord Jesus Christ gives the church at Ephesus. I want to read to you the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 2. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake, hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen and amen. Amen. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus. The first verse and the first sentence of every one of these seven epistles, and there are seven short epistles here to seven churches, takes some aspect of the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ from chapter 1 to lend authority to the words that He then utters. In this first verse, we have Him described as He that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And that's the description that was given to us in the last verse of chapter 1 and in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. And so we have the Lord Jesus Christ in full authority with his ministers in his right hand. Those are the angels. That's what the word angel means. Jesus was not writing a letter to a literal angel in heaven. He was writing to a pastor of each of those churches. And that pastor represented the whole church. You can see that if you read through chapters 2 and 3, you'll see the singular pronouns, thou, thine, thy, and thee, being altered with you, your, and ye in various verses because the church is being addressed, but it's being addressed through its pastor. Brethren, as sinners in a sinful world, the easiest thing you can ever do is to lose your first love of Jesus Christ. Because all you have to do is relax, and you'll lose it. Because you default to the love of this world, and you default against the love of Jesus Christ. You have a sinful nature. You have the world against you, and you have the devil against you. You have three enemies conspiring together to keep you from loving Jesus Christ as the chief love of your life. If you relax, it's over. You cannot relax. There's an effort that you need to be making, and we're going to be told what that effort is. The hardest thing to do is to keep that first love. And it's the emphasis of the whole Word of God, and it's the verse that I read to you earlier this morning, Keep yourselves in the love of God. From Jude, the 21st verse. 
Jesus warned his own generation with these words in Matthew 24 and verse 12. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, when iniquity is abounding on every side, and sin is more prominent than it has been at other times, that's going to cause the love of Jesus Christ and love of God to decline. And so Jesus warned that iniquity abounding would cause love to grow cold. It would no longer be first love. It wouldn't be hot love. It would be lukewarm like the church at Laodicea. And we live in a nation where sin and iniquity are abounding, and so we are threatened at all times that our love is going to go cold. And so we have this passage here that is given to not only the church at Ephesus, which long ago passed away. Long ago its candlestick was removed by the sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of His church. But it's also for us, and we want to take warning from it. It's important for us to remember that losing first love, when you lose first love for something, that means your actions toward that thing are then a form. They're going through the motions rather than being a passionate display of your love for that thing. Everyone that's ever been married knows exactly what I'm describing. There is a way to do things in marriage that's going through the motions. It's the form of love, it's the form of marriage, but it doesn't have the passion that it once had attached to it. And it's highly offensive. Everyone that's married knows exactly what I'm talking about. To make love where there is no love is offensive. To worship God with cold love, with dull love, is offensive to Him because the first and the great commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when we do not give Him all of our love, we are flirting or committing fornication with some other thing, and He is as offended or more than we have ever been when it's been done toward us. I hope you're all with me how important first love is. It's important to every one of you. It's important to every one of you, and it's important to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that going through the motions is not good enough. When our children just barely do what we ask them to do, it offends us, even when they're doing what we ask them to do, because we want them to do it cheerfully. We want them to do it with a smile. We want them to do it willingly. We want them to do it aggressively and eagerly. And when they don't, don't, it's offensive, because it's not good enough. We don't care that your two little feet are carrying the trash out. We want to see the cheerfulness and eagerness to help around the family. You've done nothing when you carried the trash out. It's so infinitesimally small on the scale of what it takes to run a household that we can't even measure it. But you measure it by dragging out there like it's some great task. Parents know it with children. Children can sense it with parents. When the parent, when the child comes to the parent and says something, they may ask a question, they may make a statement, and they're hoping their parent will talk to them. And they can, the parent can hardly drop the newspaper or turn the television down or whatever else is distracting them. Yeah, 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 I'm listening. And the child knows there's no passion or affection there for them. And so relationships break down when there isn't love. And relationships break down when there isn't first love. Because every child should hope that they are the first love of their parents. Every spouse should hope they are the first love of their spouse. Every parent should hope that their children love them very much. And when it breaks down, the relationship breaks down. And the Lord, you know that, and you're offended by it, but what about the God of heaven, who has not only created us from the clay of this earth, but has also saved us by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you think He has a right to a little of our affection? Do you think He has a right to all of our affection? Should we be living all-out zealous lives for Him because of what He has done for us? And when we cheat Him, He feels, knows He is cheated. And He knows our hearts better than anyone else can ever know them. And yet we can measure other hearts, can't we? Every man knows when he's made love to a wife and when he's made love to a mannequin. 
And so does every husband. I mean, so does every wife know that difference. And the Lord sees the, the thoughts and intents of the heart. He knows a whole lot better than we can ever figure out about one another. And let this sober us. This is the lesson of Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The Lord Jesus Christ, in His authority as the head of the churches, stands in verse 1 and says, Write this to the angel of the church at Ephesus. That church has a problem, and I want that pastor addressed this way. Verse 2. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. There are five wonderful things here. This is like a husband looking at his wife and realizing she does lots of good things. This is a wife looking at her husband and realizing he does lots of good things. But though they might do lots of good things when there isn't the passion there that was promised and that was experienced long ago, the things are dulled greatly. Look at these things. Look at the accomplishments. The Lord said, I know thy works. This was an active church. They had accomplishments. The Lord saw their works. They were a working church. They weren't sleeping. They were working. Then he saw their efforts. It says, I see your labors. We're in verse 2. I know thy works and thy labor. This was a church that was diligent about being a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They put forth effort. They were a hard-working church. They held their assemblies. They worked hard at their assemblies. They worked hard at, at taking care of each other. They worked hard at spreading the gospel. They worked hard at learning the truth. And thy patience. I know your patience. They had faith. Remember, patience is the perfection of faith. You're patient in enduring difficulties because you have faith and trust in God. And so this church had lots of faith. Because Jesus Christ saw their patience. They were a holy church. This is amazing to me. They were a holy church in that it says, Thou canst not bear them which are evil. They were not a compromising church. This was not a carnally Christian church. This was a holy church because they couldn't stand evil compromisers. They were a strict church. They were a separated church. They were holding to a standard of gospel holiness. And then they were a doctrinal church. They heard apostles come along that preached differently, so-called apostles. They heard men come along claiming to be apostles that preached differently than the apostles had taught, and they tried them. They confronted those men and discovered that they were not true apostles and condemned them and called them liars and identified them as liars. That is a great church. They have doctrinal integrity. They're orthodox. They're persevering. They're full of faith. They're living holy lives. They're working hard. It's not enough, as we're going to find out. Any pastor reading verse 2 by itself would jump up and down and say, Oh, I wish I had a church like that. Every church member reading verse 2 by itself should say, That is a great church. Look at that verse. Jesus Christ can recognize their works, their labor, their faith, their patience, their holiness, and their doctrinal integrity. They are earnestly contending for the faith once delivered to the saints because they're blasting those that are false apostles. So we come to verse 3. <coughs> and hast born. There's more in the list of good things this church was doing. They, had bo- they were enduring things that were coming their way. Difficulties, trials, and temptations. And hast patience. The church and the pastor had kept their faith in spite of a lot of opposition. And for my name's sake hast labored. Their efforts were loyal efforts. Their efforts were for the sake and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not doing it for their own name. They were laboring for the name of Jesus Christ. I read through this list as a pastor. I hope you have as members and say this is a great church. The last part of verse 3 tells us, And they had not fainted. They were not discouraged. 
They were not weakened. They were not ready to quit. They were not ready to surrender. They were still going strong in all these areas. They had not fainted. And they were doing these things for the name of Jesus Christ. For my name's sake, thou hast labored and hast not fainted. You keep on giving forth those diligent efforts because you're doing it for my name's sake. But there's still a problem. Now the problem's in verses 4 and 5, and I want to jump to verse 6. Because here's another thing in their favor. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were a false sect at this time. We don't know anything about the Nicolaitans. Anyone tells you he knows who the Nicolaitans are? He's speculating. You can play with the word all you want. You can go to Acts chapter 6 and find out that one of the first deacons was Nicholas. You can read history and find out that that deacon apostatized and led a group of men in a sect that was called the Nicolaitans. Can't prove it. It doesn't mean anything. And anybody that's worried about Nicolaitans has a problem with the lesson. Because the lesson doesn't, you don't need to know who the Nicolaitans were. It was some fault sect, doctrine or practice that Jesus Christ hated. This church hated it, which is just one more feather in their cap that they were a good church. They hated that doctrine right along with Jesus Christ. Now we come back to verse four and we start that verse with the word nevertheless. In spite of verse two, in spite of verse three, in spite of verse six, In spite of these ten glowing items of commendation and praise that Jesus gave to this church, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. I have something against you. You are wrong in a matter. You are offending me, and I am holding it against you. I will not let you get away with this, even though you have all these things in your favor. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. There is a thing that you are doing that bothers me, that offends me, and that is wrong. And though I commend you for all these other things, it's not enough. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. And then he tells us, because thou hast left thy first love. Wow. They're an accomplished church. A diligent church, a faithful church, a patiently enduring church, a persevering church, a doctrinally, a church with doctrinal integrity, an orthodox church, a holy church, a church that's doing it out of loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, a church that's confronting men who claim to be the apostles of Christ and condemning them, all these things, but it wasn't enough because it wasn't being done with their first love. Because there had been a time in this church's history when they had greater joy and excitement and love for the Lord Jesus Christ than they had right now. Though they were doing all these things. And though we go through the motions, and though the motions may be outstanding, do I need to resurrect the illustration again? A spouse knows that though the motions may be outstanding... If the first love and the passion is not there, it's not good enough. And it shouldn't be good enough. And it's not with the Lord Jesus Christ. Though they were doing all these things, and every church would aspire to be a church that could get those ten commendations, it was not good enough because they had left their first love. Their highest level of joy, their excitement at hearing the Gospel, their obsession with knowing more about Christ, Their craving of the Word of God, those features of first love had dissipated in these Ephesian saints. They were no longer like that. Every one of us in here should be able to say, I know exactly what Jesus Christ is talking about. I have experienced it toward myself, but more than that, I know about my own soul that it is not always at that first love pitch of passion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven and the righteousness of God. I am not always at that fevered pitch of joy, happiness, and desire that I once was. Every one of you should know that, unless you're not born again. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's okay, because I can't help you. No one can help you. You're not born again, and you've never experienced any of that. 
But for those that are born again, you know what I'm talking about. And there's a solution for us. And it's very comforting to know that Jesus Christ has given us the correction for this problem. And He's given it to us plainly. And it's not mystical, and it's not mysterious, and it's not supernatural. It's something you can do. And I'm thankful for that. And there's so many lessons that can be taken from verse 5 that apply to everything in your life. But we're going to, we want to take verse 5 a little more slowly. Verse 4 is so powerful. Nevertheless, in spite of all these glowing commendations, I have a problem with you. You have left your first love. The way you're doing these things is good. But it's not good enough because it's not done with the passion that I expect as your Creator and Savior. And because of that, the second half of verse 5 tells us, I will come quickly and take away your candlestick. This is how important it is. This is not just a slap on the wrist. This is, I will unchurch you. The Holy Spirit that dwells in the church at Ephesus by which you all feed and partake and drink of that one Spirit, I will remove that Holy Spirit. You will be a congregation of the dead. You will be like a body without its Spirit. You will be a corpse. I will come quickly and remove the candlestick out of His place. That is the Holy Spirit. If you will read Revelation 1, 2, and 3, you will find out that the seven spirits of God are there in each of those churches, and that spirit would be taken out and would leave a church, the congregation of the dead. They would keep right on worshiping. The sign out front would stay the same. The time of the meetings would stay the same. They'd still have assemblies, but there would be no spirit of God among them. It would be dead ritual. Lord, have mercy on us and save us. And so we're getting this warning ourselves this morning. We can be a great church. You can be a great saint, but the Lord can withdraw His Holy Spirit from you and leave you going through the motions of religion. He can leave us as a church and we'll be going through the motions of religion, not pleasing Him with no power to live spiritual lives. What a threat because of this one thing. They had lost and left their first love. Notice what it says in verse 4. I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Don't you ever blame God. He didn't say, because I took your first love away. Don't you blame circumstances. First love doesn't leave. You left your first love. Because love is a choice. Thou hast left thy first love. You have turned away from the zeal and the passion that you once had for me. Don't blame it on circumstances. Don't blame it on your feelings. You made a choice. And this is so correct because the cure is a choice. And so you know that the fault was a choice. And so we need to reverse our choices. We need to change our priorities. We need to put the Lord first again. You will meet the most jealous of beings the universe has ever imagined. You have no clue as to the jealousy of the God of heaven. There is no man in here that knows anything about jealousy. There's no woman that has ever experienced a jealous husband that is even close to the jealousy of God. A husband knows he has no real right to his wife's love in the way that God knows He has a right to our love because no husband has made his wife from the clay of the earth and breathed into her nostrils the breath of life. No husband has ever redeemed his wife from the eternal condemnation of hell, but God has done both of those. He is so jealous, the Bible calls him jealous with a capital J. Exodus 34 and verse 7, our Lord is jealous. He is a jealous God. He burns with a consuming fire when anyone flirts or fornicates with the world or his enemies. And you will meet him. And brethren, there's a meeting with Him that comes before death when we stand in His presence. And that's when He visits His churches. Notice where He's walking. He's walking among the seven golden candlesticks. What are those seven golden candlesticks? The last verse of chapter 1 told us. What are they? The seven churches. 
He's walking among those churches and taking an assessment of them. Do you think you can hide from the eyes of Him with whom we have to do? All things are naked and opened under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. He sees right into our souls and He knows you don't love me like you once did. You don't love me as much anymore. I haven't changed. Why have you changed? And you know that's one thing about our Redeemer and our Lord. He never changes, does He? Sometimes our spouses change, but the Lord's never changed. You have one lover of your soul that never changes. If there's a fault, it's with you, not with Him. First love is a matter of choice. Love is a choice. And it's very important to remember this simple but profound point. Love is a choice. Americans don't want you to think it's a choice. America, Hollywood wants you to think that love is some chemical attraction. Hollywood wants you to think that love is some romantic connection. No, it isn't. That isn't love. That's lust. There isn't one bit of L-O-V in it. It's lust. It's lust. That's why it's spontaneously triggered. Love is work. Love is effort. Love is a commandment. Love is something you do. Love is not something you feel. Love is something you do. And the feelings and pleasure of love follows the doing. You can prove it this afternoon. Go make an investment in anyone. Anyone you want. Go make an investment in them and serve them. And you will find feelings aroused toward that object of your effort. If you wait for feelings to come, you're going to wait the rest of your life. And it's the same with the Lord God of heaven. If you sit around and say, I'm waiting for the Lord to revive my soul, you're going to wait a long time. Do you know what He wants you to do? He wants you to run after Him by faith. And if you run after Him by faith, the feelings will come. The joy will come. Make an investment in anyone this afternoon. Try it. Prove it. Prove it to yourself. I'm telling you the truth of the Bible. There's nowhere in here where it says, Husbands, wait around until you love your wives. Husbands, absence makes the heart grow fonder, so separate for a month. Can you, that's the world's thinking. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Precious. Where is that found in the Bible? Does that mean the longer I stay away, the fonder I'll get? Does that mean if I left my wife for ten years and married someone else and tried to forget her that it would really revive my fires? Come on. Those are lies of the devil. Love is a choice. And it's a choice with the Lord. And they had made the wrong choice. They had turned away and they were they wanted to uphold the integrity of Jesus Christ. They were going to take a stand in the Bible. They were going to build a church. But they had lost their personal affection and, and passion for Jesus Christ and the things of God's Word. They were going through the motions and they were going through the motions well. They were not getting tired. They trusted God. They had faith in God. That's why they were able to endure these things without fainting. But they didn't have that love that you know that you have had at times in your life. When opening the Word of God was one of the most precious things that you could do with your time. When you opened those pages, even the page was precious to you. And when you read a verse, you were not skim reading because the last thing you were thinking about was skim reading. You wanted every single jewel of every word. You wanted to dwell on it and have the Lord speak to you. You would spontaneously pray. You wouldn't have to pray. You spontaneously prayed. You were blessing Him and you couldn't stop. You were full of joy. And it is the human experience that that is not sustainable. That's why David said, this is my infirmity. Do you know what that means? It's not sustainable. Well, if it's not sustainable and I have an infirmity, then what should I do? I will remember. I will remember. And so we have the the formula that we're about to get to. But I, I hope that you're all understanding that the Lord was offended. He knows that we're flirting with something else when our, when our passion for Him begins to die out. And if we go much further, He calls it fornication. You know I've preached on that before, and I want you to understand the proper sense of some verses. When James 4.4 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, 
Know ye not that friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God. When you get friendly with the world and their things become more important to your use of time and their things are more exciting to you than God's Word, you are an adulterer against heaven, against the Lord Himself. Jesus Christ considers you to be in bed with the world because you're, you're looking toward them. Every man knows what I'm talking about and so do most of their wives. When a man sees his wife looking at another man, bad things happen. And that's normal. If That's normal because it says in Song of Solomon chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, that love is strong as death and jealousy is like a fire. But the Lord's more jealous than we can ever be. And when He sees us looking at the world or enjoying the world or spending most of our time in the world or being moved and getting more excited with the world, it's, it's adultery, it's fornication. It's a concept through both Testaments. Why did God call idolatry? They went a-whoring after strange gods. Why is it called whoring? Because they were making love to another divine being in their imaginations as they worshipped that stump or that stone. Thou hast left thy first love, and I will come and take away your candlestick and leave you unchurched a congregation of the dead, even though you have all these things going for you, if you don't make efforts to restore that first love and come back and be my loving bride and remember the espousals that we had in our youth. Jeremiah chapter 2 is a wonderful passage where the Lord appeals to His people Israel, can we go back to the way it was back in Egypt when I brought you out? Do you know what kind of celebration they held on the shore of the Red Sea? They had a celebration, brethren. Go read it in Exodus chapter 15 about the celebration they had. And the Lord says, can we go back? Can we go back and start over with our espousals in the early days? Sounds like a marriage renewal seminar. But it is. It's the Lord's marriage to His churches. And we get dull. The honeymoon wears off. And we start going through the motions. And so He wants to revive us. And so we come to the fifth verse. And it says these three steps. And they're so simple. You can remember them. And I hope you always will. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. And repent and do the first works. That's the three-step formula. Now the word therefore is in there because God has said, I have somewhat against thee. Remember therefore, because I have somewhat against thee, here is the way out of this situation. Three steps. Remember from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works. It's the same way for marriage renewal. You don't need a 12 sermon series on marriage renewal, you need this verse. Apply it to your marriage. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Go back in your memory to the first love that you had for your spouse. Go back to the time when you were obsessed at being with your spouse. When you wanted to be with them and how you talked about them and how you touched them and how you enjoyed their touches. Go back and remember all of that. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Repent. Admit that it's wrong that you have let the decline occur and go do the first works again. Go back and buy the flowers. Go back and write the notes. Go back and do the things that you once did. The feelings follow the actions. And that's what the Lord is saying. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Remember the great times that we had together when you were first converted. When you craved my word. When you wanted to learn every precious thing you could about me. When you blessed me spontaneously from your soul. When you thought that Psalm 103 had been written for you. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless His holy name. Have you ever gone down the road and just wanted to scream that psalm? You should have. I'm sorry if you haven't. When you were like that with me. Remember from whence you fall and repent for not loving me like you should. And do the first works again. Take me out like you used to. Come and meet with me in prayer like you used to. Walk back and forth in some empty room where no one can see you and talk to me like you used to.
That's what the Lord's telling us. This is the little formula. And I do not want you thinking about your marriages except as a distant second to our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it works for both. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Think back to what it used to be like. Repent for letting that decline occur. And then do the first works all over again. What about this church at Ephesus? What were their first works like? The Apostle Paul visited there once for a short period of time on his second journey. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18 and 19. Then he went there and spent two to three years on his third journey. The church at Ephesus. That church at Ephesus had to stand up against Demetrius the silversmith and all the craftsmen of that city because it was the center for the worship of Diana of the Ephesians. That church was committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and they endured great opposition. Much persecution, but they endured it with patience as we've just read in Revelation chapter 2. It was in that city where the people brought their books of curious arts and burned them before all men. Now, would that get you in trouble with the curious arts people? When they burned their books before all men and the value of those books was 50,000 pieces of silver. This is the city where the seven sons of Sceva tried to cast out devils. This is the city where it says the Word of God grew and prevailed mightily. This is the city that when the Apostle Paul visited them for the third time, he came by quickly and had to stop at Miletus, and he couldn't come all the way to Ephesus. He had to stop a few miles away. The elders of that church came and met him on the shore, and they knelt down with him and prayed there, and they embraced him and kissed him and wept on his neck because they knew they were not going to see him anymore. These are statements that the Bible tells us about the church at Ephesus. They were in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in love with His apostles. They were in love with the preaching of His Word. They loved the kingdom of heaven. They were willing to give up all that they had and burn it in the streets as pertaining to the curious arts of witchcraft and sorcery. We're not told a whole lot more about them than that. But we come here and Jesus said, you've lost your, you've, you've turned away from your first love. They were not as excited about the things of the kingdom of heaven as they once had been. They were not as passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ. They were going through the motions and see there is a motion of faith that is good. There is a motion of faith that is good. They still believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. There was no doubt about that. And they were going to preach it and they were going to defend it and they were going to call down any man that claimed to be an apostle of that Lord Jesus Christ that was not. And they were going to hate those that did not live a holy and a separated life. But those things were not enough. They had lost some of their personal passion for Jesus Christ. He was no longer the full joy of their life. They were loyal to Him. They were dedicated to Him. And they weren't about to faint. But they didn't love Him. Now listen. I hope I, hope I don't have to work any harder for you to understand exactly the predicament. Every married person knows exactly what I'm talking about. You're still married, but the passion that you've experienced at times past isn't there any longer. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's the situation here. You're still married. You still know you're married. You're still committed to the marriage. But you don't have the affection, fervency, passion, and zeal in it that you once did. And so it's a revival process that we all have to go through. We sang a song earlier this morning, Revive Us Again. To revive means to bring back the life. Bring back the life. You know, the Apostle Paul would say to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5.14, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. Do you ever feel like your love is dead? Do you ever feel like a relationship is dead? Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. That's not getting born again. That's coming back to life in this way. This is a way that you can fall. Remember from whence thou art fallen. You can fall this way. You can't fall from God's grace. You can't fall out of the book of life. He is able and He will uphold you to keep you from falling. But you can fall this way. Remember from whence thou art fallen. You know, when we consider the Bereans, what can we see about the Bereans about their first love? 
How often did they get into the Scriptures to see if what they were hearing was true or not? How often? Should we trust that word daily? Or should we write a paraphrase and say, regularly? Should we have a dynamic equivalent translation and say, periodically? Was it daily? They searched the Scriptures daily. But before that, what does it say? It says they received... The word with all readiness of mind. What does a ready mind describe to you? Some ho-hum person that drags in and can barely make it through a service? Or was there an eager anticipation for hearing something from the Word of God with a ready mind? They were called noble. They had, that, that was first love. They had a ready mind. Paul, let her go. Preach. Keep preaching. And then they would go search the Scriptures daily to confirm those things. They were hungry for the Word of God because they loved the Savior that they were hearing about. In Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said about the Galatians, I just want you to consider some first love descriptions of the New Testament. Paul said about the Galatians, what's happened? What's happened? When I first came to you, I came with an infirmity in my flesh. But God is my witness. You had such affection for me, that if you could have helped me by plucking out your own eyeballs, you would have done that for me. What's happened? What what has happened to that blessedness, these are his words, that we once had? Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Notice their affection in the beginning. Now, when was the last time you thought so highly of someone that if you could have helped them, you'd have plucked your eyeball out and handed it to them? The Galatian saints would have done that for Paul because he brought them a message that they had never heard before. And that was that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament and that they had a Savior. That's the Galatians. What about Mary and Martha? Had one of those lost their first love? Who had lost her first love? Martha. What was she... Concerned about tables and serving. Cumbered about with the cares of this life. Even if it was the Lord. Did Jesus still say Mary has chosen the better part? Was Martha wanting to serve the Lord? Was she worried that the casserole might not be cooked all the way through for the Lord? Was she worried that the biscuits might not turn out for the Lord? Is that noble to a degree? Yes, that is good. But is it the best? No way. Was Mary doing what the best part was? What was she doing? She was sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ wanting to hear every syllable that dropped from His lips. Is that how you read the Bible? Is that how you listen to preaching? I am sorry that many of the syllables that come from my lips are so harsh, so difficult to receive kindly, so unappealing, but nevertheless... The truth of God is still the truth of God. And I do try to give it to you. Do you crave it like Mary did? She sat at the feet of Jesus. She had kept her first love. Martha had lost it. We read about David earlier. He was overwhelmed with his diffidence. And he said, I remembered my song in the night. He knew he had lost it. He had lost his first love. We have to go back. The first step, remember, repent, and do. Remember from whence thou art fallen, repent, and do the first words. The first thing is to go back and remember what it used to be like. The best that it ever was. Why don't I love the Lord the way that I did when it was best? What's happened? He hasn't changed. You've changed. And so the first thing is to realize there is a gap now. I'm falling short of where I used to be. So that's the first step. How joyful were you at the most joyful time in your Christianity? The brother that serves in Michigan now, hasn't he described that he remembers walking down a street when he was converted and saw the gospel in clarity and he said, my feet weren't touching the ground. Have you heard that from him before? He's told it 20 times. I don't think my feet were touching the ground. I was on a cloud. Have you ever felt that way? 
The reason you're not there now is not the Lord's fault. You have an infirmity. It's difficult. I'm not saying it's easy. And you're going to constantly fall off of that. But there's a way to get back. That's the point. There's a way to get back. Remember where you've fallen. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember how big the gap is compared to what it used to be. How zealous were you back then? How did you read the Bible? How did you pray? How did you sing back then? How thankful were you for Him and His Word? How excited did you get with just one sentence of Scripture? Because it was from Him. And He was speaking to you. The second step is to repent. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. To repent is to turn away from what you're doing that is wrong and to turn toward what you ought to be doing that is right. That's what repentance means. It's not just a feeling and it's not just words. It is a turning away from what you should not be doing and a turning toward what you should do. It's a clear admission that you're wrong. This is my fault, not yours, Lord. It's my fault and what I've done is wrong and it should be offensive to you that I don't love you as I once did. Repentance involves confession of sin and a turning. You can't just sit here this morning and say, Lord, I, I hear what I hear what he's saying up there and he's right. I don't love you as much as I once did, and I'm sorry for it. That's not repentance. That's confession. You haven't done anything yet. It's a turning away from what is wrong and a turning toward what is right. It means you've got to change some of your priorities. It means you've got to change some of your activities. Your schedule needs to be changed. Your heart needs to be changed. So you're repenting. You're turning away from what is wrong and turning toward what is right. That's repentance. It's a begging for forgiveness and it's a confession of your guilt that you should not have allowed anything to have stolen any of your love from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Elihu described it. I have perverted that which was good and it profited me not. We had a great relationship and I perverted it. I perverted it because I thought I could have both. I perverted it because I thought I I needed pleasure in this world. And it profited me not. My favorite passage of confession in the Bible, short, is Job 33, 27 and 28. And I'm paraphrasing it to you right now. Some of you have memorized it. I perverted that which was right and it profited me not. It's to tell the Lord the relationship that we had and what you deserved and expected from me was right. I perverted it. I messed things up. And it didn't profit me. I was not happier. I was miserable. And I intend to come back to you. I am coming back to you. Forgive me and have mercy upon me. And so we turn. Solomon said it's impossible to have prosperity when we hide and cover our sins. And especially when they pertain to our love of the Lord Jesus Christ. John describes the fact that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins whenever we confess them. But here's the question that I need to ask you and me. You know God is faithful to forgive you when you confess your sins. But here's the question. When was the last time you confessed the sin of losing your first love? When was the last time you confessed to the God of heaven and His Son Jesus Christ, please forgive me for not loving you like I should. Please forgive me for sliding away from that love and relationship that we once had. When was the last time you prayed that prayer? Instead of asking God for more money. Ask God for more money and end up in hell. That prayer request should be so far down the list that you only make it, you only get to it about once a year. How about, Lord, forgive me for not loving you with my first love? You say, that would, be a, that would be a strange new way of praying for me. If I was to start to have requests like that, in it, instead of saying, build my business, build my family, give me a new car, and keep my health. Who cares about your health? Wouldn't you much rather be dying in bed with a first love for Jesus Christ than walking in full strength and exercising on a treadmill while thinking about yourself and the world? Where are your priorities? You'll answer for them soon. I'm here to help you in advance. 
I'm here to help me in advance. And the Word of God is a fire and a hammer to both of us. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. It's a choice. It's a choice. The devil wants to lie to you, and your heart wants to deceive you, that it's a mystery, that you need to wait for some supernatural moving of circumstantial power from the presence of God to restore your love for Jesus Christ. That it's out of your control. That you're under a force that you cannot resist. That you cannot get it back yourself. That is a deceitful lie. The answer is, do the first works. It's a choice. It's not a circumstance. It's not an accident. It's not fate. It's a choice. I am going to love the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything else. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey what He said. If it's good enough for Him, the jealous the jealous God, if all He says is do the first works, if that's good enough, if that's the formula He gives, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remember that it's not as good as it used to be. I'm going to repent because it's my fault that it's not as good as it used to be. And I'm going to trust Him that He wants my actions and I'm going to do the first works. Most people in our frivolous, foolish, teenage society, wants to wait for the feelings. It says, feel the first feelings. That's how they think. Feel the first feelings. But the Lord didn't say that. He doesn't want our religion based on feelings. You know, when I look through the Word of God, and I see that He's given to us faith through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in Second Peter chapter 1, then He says, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue Knowledge. And when I read that list that starts with faith and ends up with brotherly kindness and charity, nowhere does it say add to your faith feelings. Nowhere. But you know, there's a whole world out there that thinks religion is feelings. They think we've got the deadest and dullest church around because we're not bouncing around with some stupid African beat to music. Because we're not having miracles performed and being slain in the Spirit. And falling all over the stage. That's how they measure religion. By feelings. It says, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. Knowledge. Understanding of the things of God. That's what we add and we build up. But nowhere does it say feelings. And look what Jesus said here in verse 5. Remember, repent, and do. Do. Where do feelings come in? Because as I've described your closest relationship with the Lord, I've described things that sound like feelings. Where do those feelings come from? That's the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon the doing. It's God's blessing upon obedience. And so you start with doing. The Lord did not tell them to wait for power from on high to move them back to a passionate relationship with Him. He said, do the first works. He didn't tell them to get the first feelings. He didn't tell them to wait for the feelings. You know, sometimes people have told me, well, I feel like a hypocrite if I go do the first works without the feelings. There's no husband in here that would say that. If his wife did the first works to get started without the feelings, he'd be pretty excited if she went back and did some of the things that she had done in the beginning. And I don't think very many women would be disappointed if the husband began doing the first works either. The feelings then follow. Feelings follow obedience is the whole lesson of the Word of God. And that's why they're not even mentioned here because He wants us to get started by doing the first works. Make the reading of My Word the priority that it once was. Make prayer the priority that it once was in your life. Make singing the joy that it once was in your life. Sing for pleasure to me like you once did instead of because you have to. Don't read to check off a chapter on your Bible reading chart. Read because you want to know me. Listen to sermons because you want to learn about me, not because you have to. Don't go through the motions for me. Come and do it the way you used to do it. The feelings, even if they're necessary, will come in the doing, not the other way around. Don't sit around waiting for the feelings to feel religious, to feel like you love Jesus Christ. 
choose to love Him. Because love is a choice. That's why the Apostle said, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. It's where you set your love. That's why it said here, thou hast left thy first love. The love didn't leave. They left the love. They made the wrong choice. This is the inspired formula. And you're going to need it for the rest of your life. And don't take that as a, as a warning of dire problems for the future. If you remember the formula, when you fall off your first love, you can restore it. Remember, repent, repent, confess to God and turn. Make a change in your life and do the first works. The feelings will come. And they will die again. When I, when I read the Psalms, I see David living and dying about a hundred times in 150 Psalms, don't you? And he was a man after God's own heart. What were your first works? What were the first works that you ought to be doing again? And when are you going to start them up again? Did you crave reading the Bible? Were you happy in a little apartment with nothing because you had a Bible? And that every sentence in it was precious? You didn't read in those days to mark off a chart. You didn't read in those days to fulfill an obligation. You read to learn about the one behind the words that was speaking to your soul. Did you meditate in the words? Would you just repeat them to yourself and think about all their fullness and breadth and rejoice? Were they sweeter to your taste than honey? Were they more precious to you than gold and silver? Was prayer a chore? Or was prayer when you got to talk to the Lord and He got to talk to you? Did you pray spontaneously with joy just telling Him how much you loved Him? When was the last time you just burst out and told the Lord how much you loved Him? With the word love. You say, I don't read that. I don't read prayers like that in the Bible. Well, then start reading the Bible. Psalm 116 and verse 1, I love the Lord. Because He hath heard the voice of my supplications. I love the Lord. Did you love to sing His praise? Did you love to hear it sung? Would you weep when you heard His praise lifted up so highly that it moved your soul? Did you talk to others with the enthusiasm and passion and zeal about the Lord Jesus Christ? Did you love to talk about Him and His wonderful works and His wonders that He's performed and the great things that He has done for your soul? Look at how much the Lord loves me, how much He's done for me. Look at His grace and mercy toward me. Did you speak of those things? I say you did, if you ever knew first love. Was it hard to cut things out of your life to make enough time for Him? It was easy. It was, Lord, bring me something else to cut out. Because He had to be first. You wanted Him first. He deserved to be first. Nothing else can compare. Did you alter your priorities to make sure He was first in your affections and actions? That's first love. I'll tell you something when you love someone in this world, you will will move heaven and hell to get with them, to talk to them, for them to be able to talk to you and for you to be able to spend time together. And that is so pitiful that another worm of Adam would be attractive enough for us to do such a thing in comparison to the Lord of heaven and earth. Did you prepare, pay attention, review every time you heard His Word preached to maximize its effect in your life? You know, there's four kinds of ground. Were you diligent to make sure you had that good ground so that that seed that God gave you could burst forth into fruitfulness? Because you wanted to give Him fruit. Because that's the reward. And that's that's what we can give back to Him that pleases Him so much. Was the overriding goal in your life to please Him? Win Him? Delight in Him? Were you so committed to Him that if He took away everything else, you'd have everything? 
If that doesn't make sense to you, it's okay. I can't help you. But did you delight in Him so much that if He took away everything, you'd have everything that a soul could desire because you'd have Him? What a great church, the church at Ephesus. Maybe in some ways, we're doing a lot of things well. Who would want to even presume on it? We, we do try. But I hope he doesn't have somewhat against us. You or me or us together. If you listen today and you walk out of here and you do not make a change in your life, you are holding the status quo. You are saying everything is fine the way it is. You will be judged. I am not the judge. He is the judge. And it's a terrible judgment. Less than first love is totally unacceptable. If we fail as a church, we lose our candlestick. And we'll be the congregation of the dead. If we fail as individuals, you will lose the presence of the Spirit of God in your life. And your life will be dull and without the blessing and favor of God in it. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Don't hear this sermon and forget about it and walk out without going and remembering, repenting, and doing the first works. May the Lord Jesus Christ bless us and have mercy upon us and convict us to pursue Him with our whole hearts. Amen.